to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our episodes and information at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. So as we move into fall, yes, it is now fall, summer is over, I want to recommend a few books that are coming out right now and focus on some books. And I think that fall and winter is really the best time for books. It's funny because there's often the summer reading list and... I don't know. In the summer, I want to be outside. That's not when I read a lot. But it's the fall and winter time that I really want to pick up a book. You know, I want to curl up with a book when it's cold outside. And there are a lot of them coming out right now that I want to recommend. And one of those is called Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. It's edited by Jasmine Singer of Veg News and Our Hen House Podcast. And I I highly recommend this book if you want to expand on the subject of our last podcast, episode 37, where we talked about diversity and racism in animal rights and veganism. And so I really recommend this book to dig in deeper on that issue. Again, it's Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. And I'll have a link to that book in the show notes. Another book that's come out, and it is just now available, is called Vegan Voices, and it's an anthology edited by Joanne Kong, and I actually have a chapter in this book. I wrote an essay for this book, and I'm going to have Joanne on the podcast soon, as well as several other writers from this book, and we're going to call that the Vegan Voices series, and that will be coming up this fall. That book is Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers. And I'll have a link to that one in the show notes as well. But today we are focusing on another book, and our guest is the author of that book, Glenn Merzer. He's a longtime author of vegan books, and this latest book is called Food is Climate. And it's a wake-up call to action on climate change through diet change. The environmental aspect of veganism is very close to my heart. I started my activist journey back in the 90s with radical environmental direct action with Earth First, doing tree sitting and logging road lockdowns. Speaking up for the Earth is speaking up for her animals, all animals, wild animals and farmed animals, because They're also affected by severe weather, by flooding, by extreme heat. It's often not talked about, but in natural disasters, animal confinement buildings where the millions of animals are are kept in these windowless warehouses, bred for our food, whatever natural disaster is happening, floods, wildfires, whatever it is, these animals are often just abandoned and left to die, frightening, horrible deaths in these disasters. So that's yet another horrible aspect to the effects of climate change. This summer of 2021 has just been relentless with extreme weather stories all over the world. 
Here in my backyard in Northern California, the incredibly beautiful South Lake Tahoe area is on fire as I record this. We're only about an hour away from there and we're choking on the smoke. The air quality has been terrible for days and we were just there. Kojin and I just took a day trip to the Emerald Bay area in South Lake Tahoe for a hike. It's so hard to believe that it's now on fire. And that would be the big weather story of the week in the U.S., but we had Hurricane Ida roll through New Orleans and across the country with devastating flooding in the Northeast and New York. We're getting it from all sides. The crisis is here and now. So this book is so timely, so important. And before we get into the conversation with Glenn, I want to say something about the wide-ranging numbers that are floating around out there that estimate the percentage of animal agriculture's impact on climate change. It's incredibly frustrating to me because there's just this wide range, extreme range of numbers depending on what study you're looking at. And Glenn actually does a fantastic job in the beginning of this book, Food is Climate, in explaining those percentages. When you have numbers that are so different from one another, especially some of them being from trusted entities like the UN, I really think we need to be careful and only use the percentages and the numbers when we can unpack it, when we can really explain what's going on. And Glenn does a fantastic job of this in this book. When we have such vastly different numbers, and I mean the range of these numbers and studies is something like 7% to 70%. I think there's a concern that we can look like fanatics or like we're just making up our own numbers. I feel that it's not effective to just throw these numbers around in memes or talking points or quick conversation. My advice is to not use the numbers unless you can really unpack them, unless you have the time and the knowledge to explain it fully, like Glenn does in this book. He doesn't get into all those numbers, but he does explain the major ones, and he does one of the best jobs that I've heard explaining the range of numbers and how each organization or entity came to those numbers and why they're so different. I think the best thing, if someone asks or it comes up, you should just hand them Glenn's book. That would be the best thing to do. I think that there's numerous reasons to avoid numbers. We can just say something like, Animal agriculture significantly contributes to climate change. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's accurate, it's true. But when you start throwing around numbers, I think several things happen. Most people start to kind of glaze over, get foggy. You know, it's hard to grasp onto these numbers. And then they may see a very different number in Time magazine or somewhere that seems credible. And I think it can just discredit us. So either take the time as to why there's a wide range of numbers, like explain why there's a wide range. But if you don't have that kind of time, if you can't unpack it, just say something like animal agriculture significantly contributes to climate change. I think that is the best thing to do. Just my two cents after thinking deeply about all this for three decades. But like I said, Glenn does an excellent job 
of unpacking it, these numbers, all the issues in a really concise and easy to read book. So let's hear more about it from Glenn. All right, I'd like to welcome now Glenn Merzer. He is a playwright, screenwriter, and author. He's authored and co-authored 11 books, with All With Vegan Messages. And Glenn began his career as a stand-up comic before devoting himself to playwriting. He wrote for network television for many years before stumbling into a career writing books that advocate for plant-exclusive diets. In his latest book, Food is Climate, he argues that the only way to reverse climate change is to put an end to animal agriculture. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thank you, Hope. Good to be with you. Yes. Well, this is an amazing book. Uh, I was able to read it before our meeting today, and I'm really glad that I did. I enjoyed it very much. But before we get into that... I know that you are a longtime vegan. So what is your vegan origin story? Why and when did you go vegan? I began by going vegetarian when I was 17. And the reason I went vegetarian was simply for my own health. I didn't have any health problems, but I had discovered by that age that all the male relatives in my, on both sides of my family tended to die in their 50s, and the women didn't do too much better. Um, And I didn't want to be middle-aged when I was 25. So it seemed obvious to me that the the problem was uh, meat. And so I decided I would give up meat, and I decided that I would give it up uh, on the first day of summer vacation after my junior year in high school when I was 17. And I remember that morning, I had an English muffin for breakfast, uh, and the phone rang. It was my old buddy, Dave. And the first thing I said was, Dave, congratulate me. And he said, why? And I said, well, because I became a vegetarian. And and he said, that's great. Since when? And and I said, well, you know, since breakfast. (laughs) And he laughed at me. And it's a very good thing that he laughed at me because I haven't had meat in the, what is it now, 48 years since then. So I appreciated that laughter. And uh, so that English muffin started me on a vegetarian diet. But I had an aunt and uncle who were both obese. And as soon as they heard that I had uh, gone vegetarian, they were terribly alarmed. And they said, where are you going to get your protein? And the first thing that occurred to me to say was, well, from cheese. Figured cheese must have protein. So um, that relieved them a little bit. And I continued to make a point of eating cheese um, so that I wouldn't be uh, protein deficient. That was my foolish thinking at the time. And then in the 30s, given my genes, in my 30s, I started to develop heart disease. I started to get pains around my heart. And I thought about it and I thought, well, I'm not eating meat and yet I'm getting these pains, but I am eating cheese. Now, why am I not eating meat? Oh yeah, because of the saturated fat and the cholesterol. And what does cheese have? Saturated fat and cholesterol. It's just liquid meat. 
So instead of going to a cardiologist, I just stopped eating cheese. I was in my mid thirties, it's about 30 years ago. And I've never had any pain since then or any health problems since then. I believe that most of us can take our health into our own hands just with nutrition. I'm not saying there's never a need for doctors, but, but I always like to start off with nutrition. And uh, so uh, that's why I became a vegan. A few uh, years after becoming a vegan, I met Howard Lyman, the, who was a fourth generation cattle rancher turned vegan and animal rights activist. And uh, we decided to write a book together. We wrote Mad Cowboy. And I learned from Howard about all of the environmental impacts of animal agriculture and from the research that I did in working on his book. And uh, once I learned about the environmental impacts, my attitude changed because until then, my attitude was simply that I was doing this for myself, for my own health. And I was never interested in talking about it or in trying to convince anyone else to go vegetarian or vegan. But once I learned what it was doing to the land and the water, I started to feel differently. And in Mad Cowboy, we made a strong case for the vegan diet. And uh, ever since then, I've gone on to uh, write a number of books and co-author even more books that advocate the plant-exclusive diet. Yeah, and Mad Cowboy, that was really one of the early amazing books, uh, very powerful vegan books. What year was that? 1998. Yeah, yeah, that was incredible. And Howard Lyman, for, for those that, that don't know, because it's, you know, it's kind of history now, uh, he was incredibly popular uh, and still is in the vegan community. But, um, but back then, he actually was so popular, he got on Oprah. And there was a big hoopla about Oprah saying she'd never eat a burger again. And the cattle ranching industry sued her. And I mean, there was quite, uh, quite, a, quite an adventure. And it's amazing that you co-authored that book, Mad Cowboy. It was a great experience for me. And Howard remains a, a very close friend. So you have written another book, your latest book, called Food is Climate. And it was recently published. And in this book, you say that, quote, key drivers of climate change are animal agriculture and the plundering of the oceans. Tell us about this book. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book because like many of us in the plant-based food movement, I've been frustrated by the fact that animal agriculture was being left out of the climate debate. Yeah. So I was frustrated that people like Al Gore and other leading climate spokesmen always talked about fossil fuels and uh, avoided the subject of animal agriculture. And this despite the fact that in 2009, the World Watch Institute issued a report that more than half of greenhouse gases are caused by animal agriculture. How could you leave something out if it's more than half of the problem? So I was always frustrated by that. And then I, I heard of a fellow named Silas Rao, who, who thinks that the overwhelming uh, percentage of greenhouse gases is caused by animal agriculture. And I contacted him to, to see 
what his, the basis of his uh, analysis was, and, and I decided that he's right. Uh, when you look at what's called the carbon opportunity cost, how much carbon dioxide could we be drawing down from the atmosphere if we had a trillion or more tr extra trees in the world? The world used to have six trillion trees, and now we're down to about three trillion. Now, some of that, of course, some of the trees uh, you know, became wood that, that is used in, in houses and in our urban infrastructure. But most of the reason for deforestation is for agriculture and particularly for animal agriculture. We are losing the Amazon rainforest for one reason above all, and that's animal agriculture. So if you look at the carbon opportunity cost, how much carbon dioxide we would draw down from the atmosphere if we had an extra trillion trees, that solves about half the problem, about half of our annual carbon emissions. But it's better than that because if we had the trees, then the soil would be healthier. And the soil stores twice as much carbon as the trees. And then it's better than that because if we return the grazing land to forest, then we would have the trees taking in carbon dioxide, we would have the soil storing carbon, and we wouldn't have the, uh, the ruminants, the cattle and the sheep and the goats that are belching methane. So if we didn't have the farmed animals on the land, we returned the land to nature and just had wild animals on the land, we would save in, in three ways. We would have the trees taking in carbon dioxide, we would have the soil storing more carbon, and we wouldn't have the emissions of methane. And the United Nations always downplays methane because it's in the interest of the animal agriculture industry to downplay methane. But methane is actually 120 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So if we reduce the methane emissions, that's gonna have the strongest immediate effect on cooling the climate. And similarly, the oceans are capable of cooling and healing the planet if we just left them alone. So I would say this, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a climatologist, but what I realized was you don't really have to be a scientist or climatologist to understand this. It's fairly simple math. The only way to solve the problem is to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, the analogy I make is to a bathtub. And Bill Gates actually makes a similar analogy in his book, how to avoid a climate disaster. He writes, here's an analogy that's especially helpful. The climate is like a bathtub that's slowly filling up with water. Even if we slow the flow of water to a trickle, the tub will eventually fill up and water will come spilling out onto the floor. That's the disaster we have to prevent. Okay, so in his analogy, the water is the greenhouse gases that we're adding to the atmosphere. And he's saying, even if it's a trickle, it's coming, it's overflow. Well, 
let's stick with the bathtub analogy. We have a bathtub that has two problems. One, the drain is clogged. So the water isn't getting out. And the other problem is the faucet is stuck and we're adding, let's say we're adding three gallons into our bathtub every minute, right? So we have a stuck faucet and we have a clogged drain. And if we called a plumber over to the house and the plumber said, I know what I can do. I could adjust the faucet so you're only getting two gallons a minute instead of three gallons a minute. I don't think any of us would be happy with that because <laughs> the, the bathtub is going to keep overflowing. Yeah. And that's what happens if the only solution to our climate emergency is cars that get a higher fuel efficiency or solar panels on the roof or wind turbines. Uh, all we're doing, yes, it's nice to move to renewable energy, but we're nowhere near 100% renewable energy. We don't have solar airplanes. Uh, so we're, we're going to keep emitting some fossil fuels. And so with all the emphasis on fossil fuels for the last 30 years, we still haven't really reduced our fossil fuel consumption. So merely turning down that faucet isn't going to help. We have to unclog the drain. And in this analogy, unclogging the drain would be having a trillion more trees that are taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's the only solution that can work. After three decades or more of their trying to solve this problem just by slowing the faucet with solar panels and, and wind turbines, we haven't gotten anywhere. We have to plant a trillion or more trees in order to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The only way to do that is to have room for that. And where do we find the room? Well, more than one third of the, of the non-ice land surface of the earth is being used for grazing. So we get the cattle and the sheep off the land. We let the forests regrow. And that's the only solution that will work. In the book, you talk about these concepts of the burning machine and the killing machine. And I believe these concepts first came from Silesh Rao, who you mentioned before, and Silesh has been on the podcast as well. So can you explain these concepts, the burning machine and the killing machine? Yes, these are terms that Silesh Rao coined to describe the two major causes of uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. By the burning machine, we mean all the uses of fossil fuel for manufacturing, for heating our homes, for energy generation. And that's the side of the equation, of course, that the leading climate spokesmen are always addressing, the fossil fuel use. By the killing machine, we mean the animal agriculture industry. Um, and you might add to that also the palm oil industry that kills so many trees in order to uh, plant uh, palm trees. The, the killing machine uh, is creating uh, greenhouse gases in a number of ways. Uh, nitrous oxide fertilizer that's used to uh, nitrous oxide that comes from fer nitrogen fertilizer that's used to grow 
crops uh, for animals, methane and nitrous oxide that comes from the animal manure, methane that the animals belch out, uh, and the carbon opportunity cost because of land use, because they're using up more than one third of the Earth's surface. So the animal agriculture industry, the, the killing machine, is creating far more greenhouse gases than the burning machine. And that's why we argue that the first thing we have to concentrate on is the killing machine. And that's because number one, it's the, it's the larger share of the problem by far. And number two, that's really the easier thing to do. So you talked about the carbon opportunity cost with reforesting the lands and rewilding. And I think this is, it's so important and not talked about enough. And I just kind of want to get back into it a little bit. And that is that the planet will benefit, of course, from there not being billions of animals belching methane and the greenhouse gases that come from their manure. Like if we're talking about global transition to a plant-based diet, there's also massive energy use in producing animal foods, all of that, all of that would go away. But we would use so much less land in this global plant-based scenario that we could reforest and rewild places like wetlands and prairies and other green spaces to capture the carbon and offset emissions. And you talked about a couple of organizations, Rewilding Europe, the Global Rewilding Alliance, and uh, how they're working to restore biodiversity and wildlife. I'd love to hear more about this. I know, you know, you talked about it a bit, but can you tell us a little more? I think that this rewilding piece is so important. Yes, it is, Hope. And it really, that is the best hope for the planet, is that we rewild as much of it as we can. Now, I think it often sounds to people like something difficult to do. You know, we have our civilization, we have our cities, we have our suburbs, we have close to 8 billion people in the world. How do you find enough of the world to, to rewild? And the answer is the grazing land is so much of the earth. We yeah. re start with rewilding the grazing land. The oceans and the grazing lands together are 80% of planet earth. And then on the other 20% where we have our cities and we have our roads and bridges, that's fine. We could continue. We can live just the way we're living now, more or less. You know, I mean, it would be better, again, if we transition more towards renewable energy, electric cars, more than certainly better than gas-guzzling cars. But for the most part, we could continue to lead the lifestyle we lead now. We can have our transportation, we can have our cell phones, we can have our electronic devices. We can continue to lead the lives we lead, live now, if we just make one change, and that change will improve our health. We need to eat human food. That's fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, mushrooms, instead of eating food that the human body is not designed to eat. 
birds and other mammals and fish, we shouldn't be eating animals. And so our health will improve and we'll be able to continue to lead lives very similar to the lives we're used to leading if we just stop the foolishness of eating animals. The, pl the planet cannot go on much longer this way. We've, we're hitting heat records and having fires um, all over the planet. We cannot continue to do this. We have to start with the most significant greenhouse gas, methane, and stop the emissions of methane as quickly as possible. And that means ending animal agriculture. Yeah, yeah. I do want to just touch on some some things you've said that I, I feel we don't want to oversimplify too much. Things like our cell phones and computers and things like that. There's mining that is happening that is you know detrimental to people and communities as well as the planet. Uh, so you know, manufacturing we certainly shouldn't be as frivolous with plastics and and all the you know new manufacturing and all of that i understand that what you're talking about is kind of immediate emergency climate change you know climate disruption uh drawdown i get that I also just want to say that we shouldn't feel that we can just go on as business as usual, uh, that there are changes that that should and need to be made in our lifestyle choices and in our purchasing and in our consumerism that will be better for the planet and for, for the animals, for people and communities. There's so much that our Western lifestyle touches. And so, I don't know, I just felt, felt kind of like I wanted to, to just say that it, that it's not so simple as that we could just go on business as usual. And as long as, as long as the world's vegan, it'll all be okay. Um, because there's a lot of complexity in all of that. But, uh, but I do understand the spirit of what you're saying, which is that a global shift to a plant-based diet would be the simplest solution. The changes that are proposed now would require so much energy and change and money involvement and subsidizing and things like that. But comparing that to a plant-based diet, like a global shift to a plant-based diet, that could just happen overnight if we just had the will. So I totally get what you're saying. Yes, and in fact, if we, if we had a, uh, if all of America began by going vegan, we would actually save money because people's health would be better and, uh, and health and health costs would go dramatically down. Um, and it's true that we, we have to make other adjustments in our lifestyles besides going vegan. But what I'm saying is we could lead a life that's very similar to the life lives we need now. So I love that you don't ignore the ocean. In your book, the oceans and ocean life are front and center. And it's so often the case that we don't, in these discussions about climate change, about the environmental impact, we don't even, we, the oceans aren't even in the conversation. And I love that you connect the oceans to the vitality of the ecosystems and you talk about how the oceans are deeply connected to the climate crisis. You talk in the book about how phytoplankton helps create so much of our oxygen. And you said, quote, 
Every breath we take contains oxygen from ocean plants, mainly phytoplankton. And that was just so powerful to hear. And you also said, quote, a 1% increase in phytoplankton activity equates to the carbon capture of 2 billion mature trees, which also is just amazing to think about. So talk about the importance of the oceans and phytoplankton in our fight against uh, climate disruption and, and why we shouldn't be killing sea life for food. Well, it had never occurred to me uh, before I did research for this book that uh, the poop of whales can help create clouds. But in fact, it does. Well, the phytoplankton feed on the nutrients from uh, whale excrement, and that creates a robust phytoplankton population. Phytoplankton emit a chemical called dimethyl sulfide, which rises in the atmosphere and it adheres to water droplets and it forms clouds. Clouds, of course, reflect light and help cool the planet. So when we, when we say save, our, save the whales, what we're really saying is also save ourselves. We need the whales. Mm. We need the phytoplankton. And the whales and the phytoplankton our best friends, despite their differences in size, they need each other. What it comes down to, to me, is, is a, a sense of human arrogance. We destroy life in the oceans without giving any of this any thought. As I said in the book, I doubt if anyone with a harpoon ever gave any thought to the fact that whales help indirectly to create clouds. Mm. The conservative thing to do, and by conservative, I mean in the sense of conserving nature and conserving life, is if you don't understand all the interactions that are happening in nature, then leave, leave it alone. It's like when, when Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring about how we were using chemicals to kill weeds, but they were also killing birds. We didn't understand it, and so we should have been leaving it alone. What we need to do is appreciate the majesty of nature and just leave it alone. When people eat lobster, they probably don't think, oh, I killed a whale so that I can have my dinner. But they may have, because the lobsters are caught in traps that lobstermen put at the bottom of the sea. And then there are ropes that attach those traps to a, a buoy on the ocean surface. And the whales often get caught up in those ropes. You know, so we need to leave the oceans alone. We need to leave the grazing land alone. And then we've got a good shot at reversing climate change. But if we don't leave it alone, if we keep exploiting it, there are going to be no fish left in the sea, no whales left in the sea and the planet's gonna continue heating up. So in your book, you also address the proposed new method of, quote, regenerative animal agriculture or uh, rotational grazing. It's got a lot of different names. Uh, also grass-fed meat. And proponents of these farming methods are 
they're, they're trying to convince consumers that if we just get the animals out of the confinement buildings and onto the pasture and onto grasslands, that somehow that will eliminate all the negative environmental impacts or even reverse them because suddenly they're sequestering carbon. Can you talk a little about this? It's a, a subject that's that's very frustrating to me personally, um, knowing what I know and how this really is not the answer. But but can you tell us why it's not the answer? It's not the answer because, in fact, there isn't enough land on planet Earth. There probably wouldn't be enough land on four planet Earths to grow enough meat that's regeneratively raised using these methods. On top of which, the, the uh, grass-fed cattle actually emit more greenhouse gases than the cattle that are in confined animal feeding operations. So arguably, as hellish as they are, as terrible for the environment as they are, um, arguably, the confined animal feeding operations lead to less greenhouse gases per cow than the so-called rotational grazing or uh, regenerative uh, animal agriculture. It's really just a hoax. And it's a hoax that is being perpetrated in order to let people think that, that they can, can, can continue to eat meat that the solution isn't the one that we're pointing to, transforming to a vegan world. To them, that's just too extreme. There's got to be a, a less extreme, more reasonable solution, and that's grass-fed meat. Well, it's preposterous. Um, it's just a hoax. And uh, there's, there's a book out by a, a doctor named Hyman who claims, who says that sure, you can still eat meat, but just make sure that it's regeneratively raised meat. Now, again, less than 1% of the meat people are eating is regeneratively raised. So I don't think the people who are reading his best-selling book are actually eating regeneratively raised meat. But even if they were, he has absolutely no reason to believe, and he gives no facts in the book, that the regeneratively raised meat is any healthier than meat from a confined animal feeding operation. It's got the same fat, the same saturated fat, the same cholesterol, the same endotoxins, the same lack of fiber. It's just as bad for you as any other meat. So it's nonsense. Yeah, and it's really fascinating to me that we are seeing these studies, study after study now that are showing that grass-fed beef is actually admitting more, more methane, more land use is worse for the environment than confined, you know, confinement operations uh, or conventional meat. You said something about that people want to find a less extreme solution, right? That regenerative animal agriculture is this less extreme solution than plant-based. But what seems so extreme to me is slitting the throat of a beautiful animal and uh, and and seeing their life drain away. I mean that it's interesting that vegans get called extreme, but what seems so extreme to me is taking the life from an innocent animal that wants to live. That's extreme to me. 
<laughs> I agree with you. And there's an analogy in the in the field of health. You know, when people develop heart disease, there's a simple solution for almost everyone who's developing heart disease, and that's the low-fat plant-based diet. But if you ask many doctors, do they suggest to their patients that they go on a low-fat plant-based diet or vegan diet? They, they might say, no, that's too extreme. Instead, they recommend a heart bypass <laughs> right. where you take a vein out of your leg, you cut open your chest with a bone saw. You oh. know, what, what the heck they do, but the, that seems more extreme to me, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Having rice and vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes no sense. It makes no sense. Uh. So how do you see a vegan transformation taking place in the world? Do you think it's happening? How could it happen? Is it possible? This is the uh, billion dollar question. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been writing books for a long time advocating the vegan diet. Certainly there are more vegans now than there were when I started 20 years ago. And um, certainly people know more uh, about veganism and there are more vegan options on menus and so forth. We have a higher profile than we did 20, 25 years ago, but not nearly enough people in the world are vegans. We need to, we need to transform to a vegan world. And my hope with this book, Food is Climate, is to make people realize that it doesn't really matter even if you're somebody who doesn't care about slaughterhouses and about the image you just um, brought forward hope about hanging cattle upside down and slitting their throats. Some people don't care about that, okay? But even if you don't care about that, even if you don't care about your own health, even if you don't care about your own health, even if you don't care about the animals, don't you want your children and grandchildren to live on a healthy planet? Yeah. And if people realize that um, animal agriculture is what is bringing on the climate emergency, ending it is the only solution to the climate emergency. Maybe some people who don't care about animal rights, don't care about their own health, will care about their children and grandchildren. Hmm. Let's hope. Let's hope. So in your book, Food is Climate, you talk about one of the solutions that the UN organizations like to suggest, like the FAO, the Food, Food and Agriculture Organization, will sometimes suggest genetically altering the cows to lower their methane gas production. And you say you have this quote, I'll read, it's kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, you said, quote, if the billions of cows in the world threaten our climate, we needn't stop eating burgers. All we have to do is build a better cow. Can you talk about how this is a dubious solution to the problem? Right. And of course, in that quote, I'm talking about the way they think, of course. Right. Right. I think. Yeah. Uh, it's a very dubious uh, solution. It's, it's nonsense. There are certain things you can do with breeding. You know, I suppose over, over the years, those in the horse racing business, which is not a business that we approve of, uh, have been able to, able to breed bigger and faster horses. 
but you can't breed a, a horse that can fly. <laughs> you know, there's certain limitations on what you can breed. And we cannot breed cows that don't belch methane. Mm. They, they, they've evolved to have a certain digestive system and they belch methane and they always will. And they belch it more and for more years if they're grass-fed than if they're in a uh, feedlot operation. Again, it just comes down to refusing to look at the real solution. The real solution is simple. It's staring us in the face. We could do without all those methane and nitrous oxide emissions if we just end animal agriculture. We can have a more robust phytoplankton population if we just stop industrial fishing. We can restore the water cycle of the earth and the carbon cycle of the earth if we just stop deforestation and plundering all the life from the seas. But the other side, the, the, the leading climate spokesmen, people like John Kerry, who are working for the current administration on climate, they don't want to look at that because it's politically unpopular to say stop eating meat and fish. So they, they fantasize. Well, what if we breed a better cow? <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's nonsense. It's preposterous. The other solution uh, now is they're talking about, and uh, the company Cargill has started doing this, put masks on cows. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and this is crazy. So putting a, putting a mask on their nose and mouth so it captures the methane somehow, right? That's the idea, and it's of course crazy, and yeah. um, uh, I don't think we're going to have a world with over a billion masked cows, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't affect the manure, and it's just nonsense. You know, there's just an obvious solution. Why don't we do what's healthiest for the human body and eat plants? It's so obvious. It's so clear. It's good for our health. It's good for our economy, it's good for the air, it's good for the water, it's good for the climate. So Glenn, I, I often ask my guests, what gives you hope for the future? And I want to say that your book gives me hope for the future. I it, it was just really satisfying and justifying to read because, of course, these are things that we've been saying in the vegan community for so many years, and uh, you just put it so beautifully and succinctly. And you have you have this three step solution, and I just want to read this for the listeners. You say, first, we must in farm subsidies, saving 20 billion annually and effectively subsidies go directly to animal agriculture. Most of them go to animal agriculture. Second, we should institute a slaughterhouse tax, a dairy tax and a fisheries tax designed to double, triple or quadruple the cost of flesh foods and dairy, a fraction of the true cost these foods impose upon the world, and we should seek an international moratorium on industrial fishing. Bravo. I want those things to be implemented tomorrow. Thank you for that clear path forward. So now that you have given me hope for the future, <laughs> what gives you hope for the future? Well, um, my friend Silas Rao likes to say that this is a very exciting time to be alive. 
because we have the oppor opportunity to transform humanity and create an amazing revolution if people will uh, just do what's best for themselves and best for the planet by going vegan. So that opportunity is there and that gives me some hope and it gives me some hope that so many particularly young people around the world are going vegan, that the vegan diet has a higher profile now than it did when I wrote Mad Cowboy with Howard Lyman. But it's a daunting challenge ahead of us. And those ideas like uh, attacks on slaughterhouses aren't going to happen anytime soon. So we have to first transition as many people as possible to a, a diet of plants. And we have to stop making preposterous alternative solutions so that people can keep eating meat. There's just no way that the planet can survive if animal agriculture continues to be a large part of, of land use. So we have to change what we do with the land on Earth. And if we can rewild the land, well, that gives me hope. In the book, I talk about Chernobyl. When, where there was that terrible nuclear explosion. Yeah. Um, uh, and now it is a, a forest. Yeah. <laughs> rewild it. Yeah. So all we have to do is rewild vast sections of the earth without first blowing up nuclear plants. That shouldn't be so <laughs> difficult. It shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I loved that part of the book. That was it, it it was amazing to hear all the wildlife and plant life and everything that has come back to Chernobyl. I was fascinated by that. Yeah, it is hopeful. So Glenn, thank you so much for being on the show. This book I feel is incredibly important. I think Everyone needs to get a copy and then get another copy for a friend and then get another copy for your family. Uh, it should be Christmas presents for everyone this coming season. Uh, it's a fantastic book, easy to read, enjoyable, and um, you did a fantastic job. So thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Hope, for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. This book is so important, and if you agree, please share this episode with your friends, with your environmental community, maybe an environmental Facebook group, people that are in your orbit that are concerned with climate change and severe weather impact. When the topic of extreme weather events comes up, this book would be a great thing to recommend. This is such a critical issue, and we're running out of time to mitigate the worst effects. We can't wait for the politicians. We can't wait for the big organizations to make these changes. It's up to us on the grassroots level. And we have the solution easily at hand, just like Glenn said. The choices we make at the grocery store, at the restaurant, can significantly help this crisis. So please do your part to curb your carbon footprint and share this episode, share this book, Food is Climate, and live vegan.